1: You're listening to the Cobras and Fire podcast. Part of the Decibel Geek Podcast Network featuring special guest from Danzig, bassist Erie Vaughn. Welcome to Cobras and Fire. My name is Baco, and I will not be joined by my lovable co-host, Luz Cannon, today. We have kind of something special in store for you. I had an opportunity to sit down and chat with Erie Vaughn of Misfits, Sam Hain, and the uh, biggest part of his career was probably Danzig solo stuff, to talk about his career and you know give an insight on uh, pretty much the, the, the bulk of Glenn Danzig's career, uh, kind of a nice, nice little peek into all that. The conversation ended up running almost two hours. So rather than try to piecemeal this together or drop it all at once, we're going to release this in two parts. So today's episode is part one. A couple days after recording this episode, it was announced that Erie would actually be a guest at the Rockin' Pod 2 in Nashville, Tennessee, on August 25th. And if you know anything about this show, you know that we are going to be there, too. Erie's going to do all the normal stuff, meeting fans, signing autographs, telling stories and that kind of stuff. But he's also going to do a Q&A moder- moderated by yours truly. So that's something I'm looking forward to very much. So for all you Danzig, Misfits, Sam Hain fans, here's a chance to come out and meet somebody that was there for it. He's also got a brilliant book out called Misery Obscura that kind of gives you a behind-the-scenes look that nobody else has really offered on all three of those bands. You know, the, the Glenn Danzig early era misfits, the Sam Haynes stuff, which Erie was a member of, and then, of course, Danzig solo act. Erie and I get into all that and so much more during this very extensive interview. I hope you like it. It's definitely one for the super fan, and I hope to see you in Nashville. You should come out and meet Erie. I guarantee you, after listening to this, you're going to see he's a pretty approachable dude. So enjoy the interview. <laughs> Welcome to the program, uh, Erie Vaughn of... Well, you were... You. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I, I knew you first from Danzig, but you have such... You know, I mean, you were in Sam Samhain. You were very... You, you had a front-row seat to the Misfits, and, and, and how would you like to, to be introduced? What should I call... What, what should I say when I say, here's Erie Vaughn? You know, you know him as what?
0: Everybody just says from Sam Samhain, Danzig, and photographer, you know for the Misfits, things
1: like that. You know, nothing special. Yeah, nothing special, man. Oh, boy. Well, let's get right to the beginning there, then. Now, you, you, did you take the very first photo session? I know you were real early on in the Misfits as far as taking pictures, right?
0: No, Glenn took all their pictures in the beginning uh, when they started. Like, all their promo shots that you see, there were stuff on the records, Uh
2: you know,
0: like the 45s. he he went to photography school or he took a course or something. I can't remember. But he knew some some stuff. And, you know, uh, he took a bunch of their pictures, you know, when they were like sort of studio setup stuff. And, um, you know, took individual pictures. But when they did band stuff, they usually had another photographer or uh, Jerry and Doyle's brother, Kenny, to take pictures. But uh, Glenn did uh, almost all the stuff in the beginning uh, that they used. And um, I didn't get, I didn't show up till around, well, Doyle and I went to uh, middle school together. So uh, we became friends in like eh, 77, 78, and then went to high school. And I didn't really get into the the Misfits until 79. You know, he told me about them. But one day he just came in with a couple of 45s and said, here's my brother's band. I want to check (laughs) it out, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then I like that stuff. He gave me, uh, uh, he gave me our business, and I lived in death. And maybe he came over and gave me, uh, uh, the London Dungeon, Three Hits from Hell record.
1: Still got it. And I,
0: I said, I said, oh, that's cool. Um, you got anything else? You know? He said, well, I got all this unreleased stuff um, that I could put on a tape for you. But I didn't have a cassette player. All we had was an eight-track at the time. And so I gave him a blank 8-track cassette, or tape, whatever you want to call it. And uh, he he burned me all the static age stuff and all the the MSP sessions, which was, you know, later, 12 Hits from Hell. I was just going to ask you
1: that. So you've heard the original 12 Hits from Hell?
0: Yeah, I still have it. Um, But... um, Yeah, then that was all the stuff that was going to be recorded later for Walk Among Us and stuff. So I listened to that, and I used to put the the tape in and put headphones on and and practice drums to all their stuff, you know.
1: So you started out on uh, drums before uh, guitar or bass?
0: Yeah, yeah, because I had taken drum lessons down at the boys' club with a friend of mine who was in the Fife and Drum Corps. He was a real good drummer. And uh, he said, well, you know, I expressed some interest. He says, well, why don't you come down? And they were using those real big, giant marching sticks, you know. Yeah. So like, you know, even bigger than the sticks that Chuck used to use. And, you know, <laughs> get all the blisters and do all that stuff. And the teacher was a real taskmaster, and if you couldn't get it. He would go, oh, okay, next, you know, move up, move on. And um, so I, I, I got the basics down. And then when I wanted to, um, you know, because Doyle said, why don't you uh, – Practicing the drums because we're we're eventually going to need another drummer because you know drummers kind of came and went in the band, and uh, so I started doing that. And I went up to this this friend of mine. His name is Paul Gaiman. Lived up the street from me. we Knew each other from kindergarten. And uh, I said, "Tell me the beat they're playing here." you so he listen to it, and he goes, "This is it." And almost every song was the same beat. So <laughs> yeah. I, was like, I was like, "Okay, okay, I got it." <sighs> and then and then when um then when I went down to um try out for the band one time Glenn came up to me and said play me a beat so I played him that beat and he went okay <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was pretty much it but um uh, can, you yeah, still, can, you can you still can you still play that beat Oh yeah okay yeah <laughs> That's I still, good I I, I I was you know I could still sit down and play you know keep time you know uh you know they didn't have a lot of fills you know they just had the basic you know, one, two, three, four tech fills like phone. Right. you know, that like, kind of stuff. No,
1: I I know but, what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. So, um I, I was I started taking pictures around oh uh, middle school, seventy eight, seventy seven and just kept doing it and then when I got to high school I sort of became like, you know, one of the photographers it's like Call you out of class and say you got to take pictures of the
1: band, or you know. Oh, so when you, you say uh, of... um, you you started taking pictures around that time, you just meant like you had a camera and you got into it, not like um, that. That's kind of where I'm going. Like, how did you decide to, to uh, the photography thing? How did you get drawn into it? Was it just like a, a you had a camera that was cheap, or did did you get some schooling? Or
0: no, I uh, my father uh, got a camera when I was. Maybe ten years old. My grandmother had gone to Japan and brought back a, a Nikon for my dad.
1: That Was a big so deal he, back then.
0: Oh yeah, it's still a you know great camera company. Um, oh yeah, I mean so I,
1: I, I the, use them too. But like uh, you know, I, getting a Nikon meant going to Japan or something back then.
0: Well, she happened to be she was a traveler, so she happened to be All over right. there, and I guess wanted to bring him back a present, so she brought him back this really nice camera. Okay, and it's real big and heavy and you know so he learned and he he knew this guy who had a photography shop you know sold supplies and all that and he would go down and ask him and you know about lenses and he would buy you know like a long lens and maybe a you know um um, a wide angle a couple other things and the guy taught him a little bit and he practiced and then he taught me you know like we were at this race um he because my dad was big into uh into sports cars and stuff. And we went to this place in uh, New Jersey called Lime Rock, where uh, Paul Newman was actually racing that day. And um, so he handed me the camera, and, you know, said, let's try to take some pictures. So, you know, I tried to shoot some stuff and took some pictures back, you know, in the pit area and things like that. And I had a friend who had his own dark room in, in middle school and he was taking pictures and he showed me a few things. So he taught me a little bit about printing and then just became a thing that I would do all the time because I took pictures as a little kid with my Instamatic camera, you know, um, setting up things and just taking, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And but um, just just became interested in that, and also it was an easy way to meet girls, you know, because you
2: could <laughs> say
0: you could say, "Hey, let me take your picture and stuff," and that's always a good icebreaker. And then I'll I'll make you a copy, you know. Yeah. And, the other thing, and then I started shooting sports, you know, in high school. i shoot the football team, basketball team, baseball, whatever, you know, whatever had to be done, and then that stuff would wind up in the yearbook, and just kept doing that, and then I had um, art class and photography class from, like, freshman year on, and uh, Doyle and I were in the same class a few times, and one day he just said, uh, why don't you shoot the Misfits? I said okay, and uh, it was supposed to be on like I thought it was going to be next Sunday, and I was at I was at the park playing basketball. It was it was actually they they thought it was going to be this Sunday, but I didn't know it was going to be this Sunday. I thought it was going to be next Sunday. So they showed up and they're all made up and ready to go, <laughs> and and uh, they're like, "What are you doing?" You was supposed to be taking pictures. I said, "I thought it was next week." He goes, "No, it's today. Come on." You know, so I had to run home on my bicycle and, you know, grab the cameras and, you know, hopefully I had film. I can't remember if I had film or not. But so we hopped into the Blazer or the Bronco. I think it was Blazer and drove a couple hours up to this cave in uh, either North Jersey or New York. I can't remember. And these are the first shots
1: in the early pages of uh, Misery Obscura?
0: Yeah, the cave stuff, you know. Yeah, And just spent uh, the afternoon until it got dark, you know, taking pictures. And uh, that was the beginning of the whole thing. And then, you know, I was like, oh, we got a show, you know, next week or two weeks from now. You want to come down and, you know, or go along and shoot the show or whatever. So I did that. And I never shot a band live. Or pretty much any other band. <laughs> I mean, I did that, made a, made a few mistakes, got a few good pictures, and then like two weeks later, it was another show. It was in Philadelphia. They said, Oh, you want to come along? And I was just like, Sure. So I shot that show and then just would give them the pictures, we let Glenn see them, and, you know. Um, and then just, I was making t shirts at the time, too, because that was another part of the art class. So they taught us how to make t shirts. So I was making t shirts, all the stuff that, that They were into, especially Glenn. You know, like monster stuff and, you know, cartoon things. You know, Underdog, Pawinkle. You know, you know, all, all stuff you couldn't buy back then. You know, it's not like today. You can go to a store and and pick up a Speed Racer shirt or a Batman shirt or something. We had to make them back then. You did know? you
1: make? Uh, so, did you make Glenn's uh, Count Chocolate T-shirt then?
0: No, no. He used. To, he had this guy who m- made screens. You know, it was just okay. A professional screen printing place, so he would just bring him down a piece of artwork or a comic thing and just say, make me a screen of this. I want it this size or whatever. So his screens were all, like, perfect. You know, so I had to you know, actually do the screens on my own and, you know, expose them and then wash them out and then you know, screen print them and stuff. Now, he made that, shirt, But I made, like, you know, Quisp and, uh, you know, Frankenberry. Sure. A lot of superheroes and just anything that that you wanted that I you couldn't buy, you know. And then I would give him the Doyle, and then uh, he would Glenn would see it and then say, tell, "Tell her, I want a couple of these," so I'd have to make him a couple you know? So it was all that thing, and we just became more friendly and stuff, and you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. And when they needed uh, material for the inner sleeve for Walk Among Us, Glenn said, "Well, you know, give me all the pictures you got or whatever," and just printed them a bunch of stuff and. They used, like, about know, six of them on the sleeve and gave me credit, which was real nice, you know. So I thought that was a pretty big
1: Anything deal. more? Did you get paid for it? or No. Okay. I mean, it's a very different environment. Uh, you know, a couple things, you know, that just to bring people back to this time. You're dealing with film. In other words, you don't even get to see how good these things look like it is now, where you can blast off 10,000 pictures and pick the three of them, you know. Yeah. Um, you really got to go develop them and find out if you had any gold and it's a very the punk uh, part was very DIY so uh, it, when for the Walk Among Us thing that was their major label record right? Mm-hmm. So as you get the, the credit on, on the thing does anything ha- happen for you there? I mean because to be honest you had a really good eye for how to sno- uh, snap live bands especially punk rock
0: Well it's I, by that time, I had my own dark room, so I could, you know, like after I did the cave shots, I knew I'd never sleep until I developed them. So I developed the roles. and before I went to bed, you know, I could huh. see what I had gotten.
1: I like the I way could, you said yeah. that, though. You were you were excited. You knew you had something. You wanted to see it, right? Oh
0: yeah. Well, I wanted to make sure I didn't screw up, you know. And <laughs> and I I was I I was very happy with what I'd gotten since I hadn't had any experience really, especially shooting those guys. They were all older than me. You know, and um, so for Doyle, he was a little younger than me, but um, I was, I wanted to impress them and say, hey, you know, look at these great shots, I got stuff, so it was, I made contact sheets and I brought them over to their house and Glenn saw them and picked this one, picked that one, or whatever, so I had to make prints and, and um, you know, so, but yeah, I was very happy with that, but, um, no, I was used to shooting sports, okay, so you have to learn what to focus on. And since I didn't have an auto drive, I I had to take one shot and get one good shot. That's the way it was, you know? So like, if the action's coming to you, you got to go, okay, well, where are they coming to? Like if it's a basketball, what do they want to do? They want to get to the rim. So you focus on the rim and they run right into the frame and they're already in focus, hopefully.
2: Okay. You know what I mean?
0: Because you don't have the time. You have to set up and say, okay, action's coming here. I got to be ready and then take the picture. Same thing with football. It's like, okay, they are going to, I was on the sidelines. The coach would call for a play. I'd say, which way is this play running? They'd say, it's coming right towards you. So I'd focus, you know, five, 10 feet in front of me. And a guy would run right into the frame and I'd take the picture, you know. So I did that with the Misfits too, because they were very active. And, um, you know, you had to look at it as if it was a sporting event. So I knew Jerry would come to a certain spot because he moved around the most. And Glenn was always on the ground and in the crowd and get beat up and stuff and, you know, freaking out. But Jerry always went up and back. So I knew he'd come to the microphone at some point. So I just focused on the microphone and then waited for him to come into the ring. And, you know, so, and just had to learn how they moved. And after a show or so, I was like, okay, I know what these guys are doing. And you know they weren't playing on these huge stages that you had to go chase and They would come to you, so you know, you'd in the crowd and trying not to get killed. I
1: was just, that that could be the other trying. downside, though, is because with these smaller venues, you basically are fighting the people. Correct?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got some shots from me in the crowd where you know you try not to get kicked in the head and people are stage diving, and you know, plus they were all slamming and stuff, and so it was you were getting pushed around a lot, and so you had to focus and and go, okay, if that's in focus, I'm I'm not going to try to focus again because, you know, you're just going to get knocked around, so a lot of times you're just taking a chance. But like I said, I had had to take one picture at a time (laughs) and get one good one, you know, so I didn't have the luxury of taking 50 shots and picking the best one.
1: Yeah, that that was my point. So that was kind of
0: tough. But see, then all that shit, there was little fanzines and things, and they, you would get be friendly with other p- photographers and just guys in, in bands in the crowd and stuff like that, and everybody'd be like, "Well, I got this, this fancy and I'm doing a story on the misfits or whatever. you got any photos?" And I'd be like, yeah. so you'd give them a couple of photos, and hmm. you know, it just went on like that. And it was you know it was all, all the stuff was like all the records were all laid out by hand. You know, you'd take the photo, you'd put it on a black background or whatever, and then you'd have to play in your type. And all this stuff, and it was basically like paste up. and Then you take it to a printer, and they print off the sleeves, and then you cut them and glue them together, and you put the records in when you get them from the record print, uh, pressing place. And you know everything was done by hand, so you know it was it was really cool. I, you know, we I really liked that and learned a lot that uh, you could just go out and put put out your own records and not you know not wait for somebody, some record company to give you a contract you know, and then they take care of everything and they screw everything up, you know? So yeah. <laughs> you you had total hands on control, which I thought was great. You know,
1: was Glenn clearly the, uh, the creative like person, like he, he, he had to green light everything.
0: Um, well, in my opinion, uh, Jerry was always coming up with ideas too, but I don't think they always agreed on when it came to like artwork and stuff like that. So yeah, I think Glenn was, uh, was the one who was, so I would say, the art director, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think his, I think he, his opinion um, carried a lot, a lot of weight, and uh, I'm sure him and Jerry had multiple arguments about certain things. Like, if you, if you know about the, um, the first um, horror business sleeve, the back cover is a totally different picture, and Jerry had gotten those printed up, as far as I know, and he got he got, you know, 10,000 of them made like Jerry does and brought them back and said, Glenn, to Glenn's like, here, I got the sleeves made, you know, all this stuff. And Glenn said, no, it doesn't look right because it wasn't black and white. It was kind of gray and white. <laughs> so that's why those sleeves never got used and they're still sitting in Glenn's basement somewhere like this. Oh, you, so, yeah. And they went back and did more of a graphic, just black background with uh, heavy contrast, white, just faces. And you know, stuff like that. So yeah, there was a there was I'm sure the two of them really you know, you can see now there's all these years later they're still button heads over things like that. You know, <laughs> T shirts and stuff. So yeah, I think I think Glenn was the one that really steered the ship when it came to a lot of things. But Jerry had a lot to do with the the look of the band, you know. And um, I, I think it was a good collaboration.
1: Any of the pictures you ever took used as like a, a forty five uh, single uh, sleeve at all, or
0: oh well, the, when Glenn had the uh, when he put out the uh, Evil Live forty five, the first uh, thousand pressings were just for the theme club, just for the people who were members, and I guess um, they could you know order them through the mail like they did with the T shirts, and I don't think he put them in the stores. Okay, and then when when that sold out, he decided to. Make another, do another pressing and, you know, with a different label and things like that and then he sold those in stores and to distributors and stuff but he had at the end of the the, the two runs that they did or the three runs um, he had like 33 um, records left with no sleeves you know, so you can't just go get 33 sleeves yeah. you have to get like at least a thousand so what back did, then anyway and, yeah well he went and, uh, to the copy shop and laid out um, different covers. So there was three different covers, and he put those in 11 sets of three. So oh, there was boy. 33 records. So he used one of my photos for his, his one, because it was one of Jerry, one of Glenn, and one of Doyle. So he used my one of my pictures from uh, uh, a club in Jersey City, the last show I shot them at, and that was pretty cool, you know.
1: So, well you were, you were still I, in high school at this time. Did you actually go on the road at all?
0: Oh no, I couldn't do that. You know, I mean Doyle could take you know, a month off, which he did once when we were in uh seniors, I guess, to do a tour for Walk Among Us, I think it was. So they that's when they went out to California. He's a lot and younger was,
1: than uh the the other two then.
0: Uh yeah, well Glenn's uh nine years older than me. Okay. Uh Jerry's four or five years older all right, than me. Okay. So all right. I'm getting it. Yeah. Yeah. So so Doyle got permission, I guess, to, to be out of school for a month.
1: And, <laughs> got a um, pass to go on tour. Yeah, well, like, you
0: know, I'm sure it didn't really hurt his grades or any. But, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I remember that. And um, no, I couldn't go on the road. I did a couple of local gigs, you know, here and there, stuff that was easy to get to, you know, some New York stuff, and like I said, the Philadelphia show and other you know a couple other things yeah. you know they would either give me a ride or i'd have to get down there myself but
1: walk among us was close to the end for them right
0: well they had what did they do after that
1: i want to say there was 83 i don't remember the...
0: No, 82 was when that came 82?
1: out 82 okay all
0: right right so they right before that they put out they put out the halloween record and they put out the three hits from hell then they put out walk among us i believe and then Glenn had put out Who Killed Marilyn in that time, like in 81 or 80. And then they did uh, Earth AD in 83, with mm. Robo playing drums, and they recorded it out. The, I, I think, I'm not sure if they recorded it in California or not, but they used uh, Black Flag's engi- en- engineer producer spot yeah, and, um, and recorded that, and that came out in 83. And then I don't know if they toured that much with it. It's hard to remember. But they, they broke up not long after that, you right. know? So the record was probably only, you know, maybe six months old or something.
1: And that's kind of uh, where you come in as a musician, if I'm following your career right. You were, uh, yeah. uh, basically, he went from, uh, Glenn left the Misfits, started Sam Hain, and you were the bass player from the beginning, correct?
0: No, I started off as a drummer. I was, I was doing my own band, and I had to put out my own records. And I was playing drums. We were doing Is that
1: the uh, drums. what were they called? Uh, I know Rosemary's it's in your book. Babies. Rosemary's Babies. I didn't know they put out a record.
0: Uh, yeah, we put out a, a ten-song seven-inch uh, on red vinyl.
1: <laughs> Is that on and, Spotify?
0: <laughs> uh, well, we you know, like twenty years later, we put uh, we put out uh, a CD with like the ten songs plus ten okay. songs that we had in the can, and plus five live songs. Put that out. Um, and, yeah, that's around. You can find it on uh, one of those things where you can just go on YouTube and, you know, it's on there, you know. And, uh, and that, that sounds real good,
1: you know. Eerie, before we get too far, I would like to mention your book, Misery Obscura. For anybody listening, uh, is the book still available? I'm not even sure. I, I bought it pretty much right away, but I've had it for uh, obviously some time at this point. But you, you it's, it's basically, it's almost a chronicle of Glenn Danzig's life. In a way, I mean, it touches on more than that, but that that is the big focus of of the misfits. Sam Hain, your time in Danzig, uh, which is, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but that is the the time of Danzig, and and also your your band Rosemary's Baby is covered in there, plus some of your your shooting of football and all that good stuff. Uh, is that still something that uh, a listener could buy? Have you done more printings or is it sold out?
0: Oh, uh, we start we we did the first. Two or three printings with uh, Dark Horse, the comic company. Okay, and that—that's it's beautiful, by the
1: way. The one I got is nice hard copy. Got kind of a a a varnish on the front there to kind of offset some of the stuff. It's just nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, it came out real nice, and um, people loved it. And you know, I just basically told the story about you know how things. Started for me you know and how everything went and everybody in the book was just characters in the story you know so um, after three years um, the contract was up and I ca- I got all the rights back and all the you know material so I went to another company it's called bazillion points and a guy named Ian who puts out wonderful books of uh, you know bands and just great stuff so the, it's still in print now we've done uh, you know, one printing, I'm not sure if we're ready to do a second one. But, um, yeah, it's still a print. You can get it. You just, you know, you can get it at Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, it's it's good. It's Everybody says they, they read it over and over again. You know, you yeah. sit down and it takes you about an hour to go through it, and then you read it again. And then, you, you know.
1: Exactly what you're saying. I'm just, if anybody listening, just track it down. It's called Misery Obscura by Erie Vaughn. It, it if you're a fan of that era of, uh, of the misfits punk the the new york punk scene if you're a fan of the sam Hain or Danzig you're not gonna find better first-hand photo uh, photography and, and plus a great story you you, you fill it in with the uh, your your own uh, your own anecdotes as all the way through so check it out people please
0: yeah it's it's easy to read because i i i, I wrote it <laughs> As like I'm talking to you now, you know, it's, I wrote it just like if I'm, you're sitting in, sitting here talking to me you know, that's the way it goes. So it's real, it's, it, yeah. you kind of,
1: Agreed. Get,
0: get, you know, you get into it because it's, it's easy to read and then you see the pictures and the references like, okay, I was talking about this and then here's a picture of it, you know, or whatever you know, where it was, when it was, what was going on at the time.
1: So, uh, yeah,
0: it's good. It's, I'm very happy with it, and we're working on a follow-up to it. So
1: Well, that's you know. awesome, too. Um, back to the founding, how did Sam Hain come together then? Did uh, uh, Were you, like, uh, basically, what, did, did Glenn and Jerry split the Misfits camp into two? Did you kind of follow Glenn while Doyle followed his brother?
0: Well, we were out of high school by then, and usually, you know, unless you're real close with somebody, You know, after graduation, you never see these people again. Right. You know, so um, Glenn and I had become friends, you know, in the band, you know, with the band. And then when they broke up, you know, we had been talking a lot. And then it was basically I I would hang out with him and we'd go to movies or, you know, have lunch, talk about comic books and toys and you know stuff like that monster (laughs) movies and it was we basically were you know i was having a little trouble with some of the guys in my band you know not showing up for rehearsals or not being into it as much as they were and maybe you wanted to go in this direction they wanted to go some other direction and you know you got to have a unified front you know you can't just say well you know the songs have to sound you know being the right direction you know the look of the band Everything, the attitude, all has to be. Everybody has to be on the same page.
1: Absolutely. So we we
0: talked we talked about that, and he was evolving and wanted to do something a little bit different. His songwriting was becoming not not better, but definitely better, but um, different stuff that wouldn't really work with the Misfits. And he probably does the same thing today. He always he w- he just writes, and he would write something and go, "That's not right for the." for the Misfits, okay. I'll just put that on the shelf and use that later, or you know, give it to somebody else down the road. So he had all these songs for his next band, like already kind of conceived in his head or written down. So he just says, well, he comes back from this I think it was a Detroit show, it was the last show. Um, and he says, well, you want to do the band or what? And I'm like, sure. And I had, you know, ear and drums, my parents' basement. So they were already set up for Rosemary's baby, so I said, "Yeah, come on over, you know, it's, you know on two there or whatever." And uh, so I had guitars and things, you know, so he just said, "Okay, this is the way this song goes." And the uh, first song we, we worked on was, I think, was uh, "All Murder All guts All Fun." this timing that wasn't everybody's got this internal timing and um we used to say oh guys from new york have one timing guys from jersey have a little bit different timing (laughs) so it's it's like that if you go across the country everybody's got their own little timing it's just like an accent you know the way you talk so they were he was all the timing was on Instead of ones and twos uh, or it was like threes and fives and you know, like stuff that I was—it wasn't naturally coming out because I wasn't a great drummer. I just, you know, played as fast as I could. You know, and uh, so we we went did a rehearsal. Then I asked a guitar player from Rosemary's Babies to come down and uh, maybe help flesh out the songs a little bit. We did that. Got to be two or three rehearsals, and you know, we both came to the conclusion. But I certainly did that. I said, you know, I can't cut this. I'm not I'm not good enough drummer for this for this stuff you should get somebody else and he goes well what about that guy Steve who I went to high school with lives in Lodi Steve. can get the rehearsal I said he's a pretty good drummer he's, I said yeah he's a good drummer he says why don't you play bass I said okay and that was it you know so I'm now you have
1: settled the argument that bass is the easiest instrument to play I think correct
0: well yeah for punk rock yeah
1: I'm just I'm messing around
0: well yeah but that's you know it's only got four strings you know I mean
1: yeah but, um,
0: yeah, no, it's not. It's, there's some really great bass players. But, I know.
1: I'm yeah, having fun with it. The, the, I, I don't literally yeah, mean uh,
0: that. No, I had to. Uh, I had to. <laughs> I didn't know what the notes were. And Glenn would say, okay, this, you, for, you, this this, is an A. This is a G. This is a D. Okay. And then we just said, so, you know, I had to cite <laughs> everything, you know what I mean? Like, I, until I learned where the notes were anyway, you know, but... And yeah, then the first... The from
1: first, there, it's uh, All Murder, All Guts, All Fun, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's all a bad dream, you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, the first... The, actually, the first song that we worked on, me, Steve, and Glenn, at Steve's apartment in Lodi, was uh, our version of horror business.
2: Oh. You know,
0: because it was, it was very simple. We were going to call it Horror Biz, and, you know, so it was just like it only had like five notes in the whole song, so you know we started with that, and just you know I just tried to muddle through and try to hit the right notes, and basically that was it. You just keep keep playing and try to get better, and you know just uh, just take it from there, just like any other punk band, you know.
1: So on the cover of Initium, how come there's only three of you?
0: We didn't have a guitar player at the time.
1: Okay.
0: And, <laughs> yeah, so so Glenn had done some rhythm tracks. And, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, he brought he brought in Lyle from Minor Threat to do some more sophisticated guitar and maybe some lead parts. And that was the, the original concept of the band. It was going to be me and Glenn, and we would bring in guys when we wanted to make a record, bring in a drummer, bring in a guitar player. And then if those guys were available when we went on the road then they would go and they would play with us if they weren't we'd get other guys to go on the road but it was basically going to be like a revolving door of musicians you know whenever we wanted to make a record but you can't rehearse like that so we had to say well we that's a good idea but it's not going to work because you know you got to work around everybody's schedule and so we needed guys who were in town that could come to rehearsal a couple times a week and we got who was playing with uh, Steve and Morning Noise and he lived in Rutherford which was just you okay. know 20 minutes away 15 minutes away from Lodi so he could get the rehearsal he had his own vehicle and stuff like that it's an old VW bus you know and uh, so we had to do that and then you know we he Glenn wanted to get the record out he ne- we needed a cover you know so we took the picture the uh, record came out we got uh, after the, the first Rock Hotel show where Lyle played, um, we decided, well, we need somebody local, and then started rehearsing with Pete, and then, um, then went on tour, and the record wasn't out yet, so nobody knew who the fuck we were or hadn't heard any of the songs, yeah. so we're playing like 20 people, you know, 30 people. And but he wanted to go out. and wanted to get the ball rolling and you know let people know that uh, you know this was a new band. It wasn't the Misfits and you know get, keep moving forward. You know usually you know you gotta you gotta have the records gotta be out for a couple of months before you go on tour. But you know, that's not the way we did it. You know. But uh, next time we came around, everybody knew. So we were playing a couple hundred people by then. You know.
1: And so when you first started jamming, I, I assume it was all. Tracks that were kind of that ended up being a, on issue Is that fair? Because you, you mentioned two of them.
0: Yeah. Uh, he had already recorded a version of Archangel, like, uh, while he's I don't know if it was while the Misfits were still together or right after that. I'm not sure. Um, but th- that was a song he had written and he wanted to give to Dave Vanian from the damned, you know, to sing. And I think it was either the Misfits were going to back him up and he was going to sing it and gonna put out a record. I don't know. I can't remember the story. It could be wrong. Or he was just going to give the song. Maybe he just wrote it for Dave Vanian because he thought it, it would go good with his style of time. So we had that song in the can and he, want, you know, just, I think, um, after he, he wasn't thrilled with the ver- you know the final version, so we re-recorded the bass parts and maybe some other guitar stuff. So we had the one track, and then went in and recorded, um, you know, all the rest of the stuff. But that was, yeah, that was the stuff that we were working on, as well as still playing a couple of Misfit songs to round out the set because like our first show we had like nine songs, and you know that, that's not an hour. You know, so we had to throw in, you know, Die, Die, My Darling, London Dungeon or
2: okay. you know,
0: something like that. You know, just just also as a sort of nod to the, the, the fans who were Misfit fans who came here to see what the hell this was all about. You know, so we, you know, if they didn't like the songs we were playing because most of the Sam Hain songs were a lot slower, and um, they would be like, play faster, play faster. Glenn's like, you want to hear something fast? And they're like, yeah, it's like here's another slow one. <laughs> you know and so but then we do you know London Dungeon or die die or something like that and okay. you know they would all get excited and you know might have played Death Comes Ripping every once in a while well
1: Glenn has and, always uh, seemed to so, have his eyes forward as far as what he was doing create create uh creatively especially at this time of his life um
0: well, you have to. You can't just keep, you know you can't just keep playing the same old songs over and over again. You know you have to keep moving and keep writing. And every song you hope to top the last song you thought was good, or the last record you put out. Sure. You have to. The next record has to be better. You know, you can't just go back and oh well, everybody liked that one, so we'll just give them another one of those. He's like, that's not the way to be. Some people do that, but that's not the way I look at it, and that's not the way he looks at it. I don't. I don't think. Well, at least he didn't then. So. Um, that's, I think any, you know, real musicians, or people who are really creative, they want to beat, you know, what they just did or they want to beat this artist that they really like. You know, the Beatles were trying to be better than Roy Orbison and the Stones were trying to top Chuck Berry or whatever. It's just like you just have to shoot for the stars, you know, or shoot for the moon and just try to get better, you know, every time, you know, that's just the way it goes.
1: Now I know it was a long time ago and you you you've played a ton of shows. Uh but I know Sam Hain only played one show in my uh, where I'm at Minneapolis, but it was at the 7th Street Entry, part of the First Avenue club. Any chance you have any recollection of that? Oh yeah. Seriously. Well, I'm
0: big I'm a big Prince fan, so I was thrilled to to be I you know, be in the building where they filmed Purple Rain, you know.
2: Oh, right so. on.
0: Right, so it was snowing, and it was Minneapolis and stuff, and, you know, I know we were playing this little, this little, you know, bar next to it, which I didn't even know existed.
1: Yeah, it's a little room off the side almost, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I didn't know that, you know, so I, so, so, you know, after soundcheck or before soundcheck, I walk into the big room so I could see what it look like and it's it was was so much smaller than it looked on the film you know and (laughs) i was i was looking up at the balcony where they did these certain scenes and what the stage was like and stage wasn't very big but it was bigger than stages we were playing and just walking around the room and going fuck this is where prince plays you know and he lives here and all this it was very cool back then you know um so we played that show and you know it was it was great, like they usually all were, and then when we got, came through town, like in, you know, 1990, I think Danzig played The Big Room with uh, Soundgarden, Corrosion and Conformity, and that was, that was just fantastic, you know. And I was Danzig very headlining, right? Yeah, yeah, it was just, it, it was great, it was great, I, I, I'm still a big Prince fan, and, you know, was, always wanted to go to Paisley Park, and then he has to fucking up and die on me, so. You know, well, sure if you happens. ever
1: make it up here, I'll, I'll take you out to Paisley Park. It still exists.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure. Well, uh, is it like good Graceland now? The, yeah, pretty much, yeah. He,
1: he's our Elvis, Eerie. Uh, <laughs>
0: oh, good. Well, then I, I look forward to that,
1: yeah. Yeah, they've turned it into, uh, you know, uh, you can take tours and all this stuff. Uh, they basically, it, yeah, it is now defunct as a, a functioning entity, I believe. It is just about celebrating the life of Prince. So.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah, Jesus I'm sure they're going to be putting out records of his for you know until we die.
1: Oh, you kidding? You know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he he lived longer than Hendrix and recorded more. So.
0: Oh yeah, you know, like recorded all the time. But the thing I liked about that was it was uh, I, I don't know if it was his club or somebody opened up the the glam slam wasn't there a club. Yeah, was, yeah. Either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, like him, like doing a show somewhere or anywhere around the country, and then. After the show, going out and going to some little club and then playing until the sun came up, you know, like the Almond Brothers used to do yeah. that kind of shit, you know. And I was just like, "This guy's a nut," you know. Like he just loves playing so much that he could do two hours and then go play for another three hours or four hours, and uh, you know, it just looked that was amazing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you're you're making me nostalgic and a little sad. I I agree one one hundred percent. But uh, back to Sam Hain. Sam Hain kind of leads into Danzig as a, as a band. Uh, but John Christ actually he comes in during Sam Hain, correct?
0: Yeah. Well, at the end, you know, we didn't have a, a drummer. Oh, yes, you know, we still had London. Um, we didn't we didn't have a guitar player. So John came in, moved moved uh, like a town over, and started coming to like rehearsals. And we needed somebody to overdub. Guitar parts because Glenn and I were working on what was going to be the next Sam Hain record. Um, so we had songs that wound up on the first Danzig album. And he wanted him to overdub a couple things on other songs. And, you know, so he played on that, the sa- sa- Sam Hain Grimm, Sound Grim, The Final Descent. Um, so that was going to come out. You know, we were just, I guess we were going to continue the band like that. But, um,. It just didn't it didn't um, things were changing, you know, it was just like it didn't it didn't seem like it was the right time for that to come out or maybe it would never come out. Some you know, you put you make records, sometimes they don't come out.
2: Okay. But um
0: yeah, we we got we got John after long auditions and stuff and then, you know, uh Rick Rubin was involved by that time. Mm-hmm.
1: that brings us to the end of part one in part two you probably figured we get into the next part of erie's career with glenn danzig and that is the band danzig and how all that came together how they you know what it was like on their way up and then of course the the end and what Erie did after all that stuff so i promise you if you enjoyed this conversation and you're a fan of glenn danzig's solo stuff you're gonna love part two Anyway, thanks for listening. Go to our Facebook page, give us a rating. Go to iTunes, give us a rating. We are now on Twitter. Please follow us on Twitter. Rock's not dead. It's hiding. Somewhere between the last Sam Hain record and Rick Rubin's butt crack.